0: this is the finding backcountry podcast episode number 15 with kip fowler welcome to the finding backcountry podcast with your host dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Before we get too deep into the BS, why don't you... uh why don't you just kind of give your rundown more so for me, I'm, I'm a little bit curious. Um, you know, my, my kind of backstory on you is, um, and it's funny how, you know, intertwined everything is and yet you can go forever and not, not really know someone, but, um, you're like the guy that for me flew under the radar. And yet I, I would all every year I would hear your name. It seems like, and it and it was like not hear your name necessarily, but just, oh, there's yeah, Kip Fowler, he killed a huge mule deer again. Oh yep. Another year. Oh, Kip Fowler, yeah. Oh yeah, Kip Fowler killed another huge mule deer. And I know ne- I've never known you. This is the first time I've ever talked to you, but I feel like um, you know, I've I've known who you are most of my life. Just oh yeah, Kip Fowler, he killed another huge, <laughs> huge
1: mule deer. So what's what, oh, what, funny?
0: What's kind of your backstory and uh, and how'd you get into hunting?
1: You know, so I grew up um I grew up down there in southern Utah, and ever i mean ever since I was a little, just a real young kid, I was bow hunting i had you know I made my first bow when I was really, really young. my dad, my uncle um always had my brother and I out out with a bow, um you know down in your neck of the woods, actually we were all over those mountains down there, so I've been bow hunting since i I can read earliest days I can remember when I was five six, seven years old um and, you know, back then, that's what was kind of fun. Back then, when you were, uh, I think, 14, you could hunt in Utah when you were 14. And you could hunt all three hunts archery, muzzle loader. Back then, it was the late muzzle loader, and then um, the rifle hunt. But I just, I was always bow hunting ever since I was a little kid. And, you know, but back then, too, Dustin, I, again, I'm surprised you and I have never run into each other because we know <laughs> a lot of the same people. We cover a lot of the same country. Yeah. Um, and it's, But to your point, it has become a very small, tight knit community within hunting because of social media, because of everything that's out there that you're involved in, but you always kind of, to your point, back in the day, especially in southern Utah in that area, I kind of had the guys I, I gravitated, gravitated to, I followed, I kind of knew who they were, but it was hard to reach out and connect with them. Um, you know, I still remember the first cell phones when they came out, and, <laughs> and but now you can connect with so many guys in so many ways, so it's easy to play the name game, and it's easy to put a face to a name now. Um, but I, that was all, that wasn't around when I was, you know, younger in high school, even in college. And it hasn't been to the last really 10 years that you could really connect and, and get to intermingle with certain guys in the hunting community. It's just brought that community yeah. so much tighter, but I, back to your question. Yeah. I grew up down there, hunting down there, and then I probably would still be spending most of my time down there, but I'm up here. Uh, but still there's a lot of opportunities up around where I'm at now too. Yeah.
0: You obviously just mentioned you've been married twenty years. Talk, talk real quick. Uh, I'm just always curious. You know how how that relationship with your wife goes. Um, being as as passionate about hunting as you are, and and maybe does she hunt, or is it just kind of your thing that you're? Into? Yeah.
1: No, it's well, first and foremost. I put I put her first above everything. My wife and my kids are always top priority for me, and that I think that's true for most guys. So it's a balancing act between. Um, how do you how do you balance that really? How do you balance uh, your relationship with, if you're married with your wife, and then spending time with your kids, quality time, and then wanting to go hunt and spend time in the outdoor. So it's a it's such a balancing act. My wife grew up in a small town in Idaho, really small town. Um, her dad worked for the Forest Service. She moved down to Utah when she was in high school, and then we kind of met on a on a fluke um, and got married. We've been married 20 years now. Uh, we have seven kids. They range from my oldest daughter is 18. Uh, she's playing volleyball at Snow College this year and actually just submitted her papers for her LDS mission. So we're, we're going to get a mission call from my oldest daughter, Brielle, uh, any day now. And then we have seven kids. Our youngest is three years old, my daughter, Grace. So we have them spaced all in between. And, and um, you know, they, they take priority over everything for me, so that it's, it's changed as I've gotten older. Dustin, as, as I'm sure a lot of guys that are listening to the podcast know, as you as you move on in life and as you have a family, you you're, you can't always put yourself and your priorities first. It just doesn't work, and and I, and I it's actually made me a more effective um, bow hunter when I realized that my time is a little more limited than it used to be in the field. So I kind of changed my tactics in the field, knowing that. I don't have seven, eight, nine hunts a year. I've only got a handful, and I need to try to be more effective when I'm out in the field because I got other things at home I need to put priority on.
0: Yeah, and you know, and you're still getting it done, which says a lot. So,
1: <clears throat> yeah, but no, my wife doesn't. She doesn't hunt, uh, and it, it's kind of funny. She, you know, she's so focused on family and, and other people. She's so selfless that way that, you know, most of what I do hunting. Um, I don't want to say she rolls her eyes out, but she supports me in it, but there, there's just so many other things that are so important to her and our family that, you know, I've done a couple podcasts, you know, she doesn't know that. She, she, We're focused on other things together, but she also respects and knows how much I enjoy going out, and luckily I've been able to take my kids. Um, I, I have my boys and girls out with me a lot, and it's a healthy, good thing for our family and for us, so um, this isn't priority number one for my wife, Lynette, but we definitely support each other in everything we do. Yeah.
0: So do you uh, do you get any opportunities? I, and I think I know the answer, but do you hunt out of state um, or is it just, just here in Utah or kind of what's your strategy there now?
1: Yeah, you know, I didn't grow up hunting out of state at all. It was funny. I've talked about this before, but when I grew up, it was just you had one hunt a year. I, and, and, you know, we bow hunted casually all growing up, but kind of the big epic hunt for me every year was the rifle hunt with my dad. So I just remember that that but, third week in October was such a great it, it was like Christmas Day for me, looking forward to going out and rifle hunting with my dad and my uncle's and brothers and that was all that was really available. The kid was just once a year going out on that big hunt and it wasn't actually i don't think I even hunted out of state Dustin, probably until seven or eight years ago um, we started looking at we started looking at Colorado, and then we started going out and whitetail hunting back in the Midwest. But so I, I, and and now we go down and bear hunt uh, in different states in the Southwest, Arizona. So right now, I pretty much in the spring we try to get a spring bear hunt in somewhere in the Southwest, just to kind of shake things up in the spring, <laughs> just to give us something to do. And then in the fall, it's usually Utah. Maybe getting out to another mule deer hunt if we can, and then that uh rut hunt in uh, November, usually back east in Illinois or Indiana. And that's really about it. That's about all I have time to try to squeeze in. But the out of state hunting thing really didn't start for me until fairly recently because it just, it, it, I was so busy, um I didn't feel like I had the time to look elsewhere. And now I think. I wish I would have known about some of these out-of-state hunts sooner because you can do it and you don't need to take a week sometimes you can do a good out-of-state hunt in three or four days so it's a little more practical if you approach it that way
0: yeah isn't it crazy how uh, you know because and we were the same way you know not not uh, I don't have uh, quite the experience the length of you know years that you have experience wise but but that's I remember even as a kid I mean that's we didn't we didn't go out of state. Not only did we not go out of state, we didn't even hunt different species. It was just mule deer. And we were just, we were just going to hunt, you know, the one, maybe two weekends a year, even though the, the rifle hunt, uh, in Nevada at that time, and still now for some units was, it was like the whole month of October, you know, the fifth through the 31st, but part, partly because of the, the unit that we hunted was kind of a migration area. And so we weren't going to have a lot of success finding deer anyway, till later in the in the month, yeah. but, but yeah, it was just a, it was a, maybe a three day weekend, um, in Nevada. Cause you'd get Nevada day off, you know, and my dad was a teacher. And so we'd leave Friday from a football game drive, you know, three or four, two or three hours or whatever all night. And then hunt Saturday. Um, you know, we never, definitely never hunted on Sunday cause an LDS person would never do that. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and then hunt Monday and come home, and and you, you just not that we weren't looking for big bucks back then, but you just kind of shot the best buck that you saw, you know, in the two or three days that you had, and uh, and were happy. And oh man, dang, you got a bigger one than I got, and it was just kind of the luck of the the moment. And you went home, and man, it's it sure has changed, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it has, and it's been a, it's been a good change, it, it, but it is a change. I again, I just remember how. Just monumental and epic the rifle hunt was, (laughs) and and it 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 wasn't until recently that I started to realize you could do multiple hunts a year. I kind of I I can't say that I hunt all year because usually from December to to April or May I lay really really low and and try to get brownie points in at home, take care of everything at home, (laughs) and then usually April May we get to swing away for a a bear hunt with with the kids. But it's it wasn't that way growing up, and I, I think it's probably a really neat good thing that more of us uh the younger generation and even guys our age now have the opportunity to look at more than just one hunt um and uh i I, you know i I wish i would have known about some of these hunts sooner in my life but man i we still got a lot of time ahead of us so i think there's a lot of good hunting still but that has changed yeah
0: you know and we're we're knocking on the doorstep of uh, application season in fact a couple uh hunt you know states are open and like wyoming elk's about to end here at the end of the month just talk maybe briefly about your uh, kind of what your application strategy is or do you have a strategy or are you building points and kind of where you build points and all that
1: yeah we're building points in wyoming i went up a couple of years ago with my friend matt bateman um, to an area that they've hunted before we build points for deer and elk we've been building points for deer for quite a while and haven't cashed in on those yet up there um, but we built points, put in and drew an elk pack up there a few years ago and uh, killed some good bulls with our bows. So we do that and we built points there in uh, Wyoming for deer and elk every year. We're building points in Colorado for deer and um, Arizona building points for, for deer and elk again and that's really about it. I, Again, because I, I, you know, I think if I try to Build too many points in too many states. For me, it's gonna it's gonna almost put pressure to try to apply for hunts that right now I probably just don't have time to do. I should be building more points. We should be building points in Nevada. We should be building points in whatever state we can. Um, but that's what I do right now. We build points deer and elk in Wyoming. Build points in Arizona for deer and elk. Build points in Colorado for deer and elk. And then when it's strategic enough, and you look at the odds and figure out which tag you think you can pull. Um, we try to be strategic in being realistic about what hunts we can do in the fall. I got, you know, my kids are in fall sports, so, you know, my son, Ethan's going to be a senior this next year in football, and I got to be realistic on what hunts I can I can try to get away with in the fall. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at this next year thinking I can hunt Utah, and maybe I can get a fall hunt in and if we can get something to Colorado. And then that's probably realistically it until we go late season uh, whitetail hunting in November because football may be over by then. But... You know, for me right now, that's probably it. Um, and then, you know, maybe a year or two down the road, we can do something else. But again, to, to your point earlier, that's that balance between I don't want to pull four tags or five tags in a fall and try to put priority over those and, and be gone for family stuff. Yeah. So it's just that balancing act. And you know, if I can get three or four good hunts in a year, that's good for me.
0: Yeah, you know, and that's that's what it is is a balancing act. And 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 you know, the the irony is like you're you're always trying to be you know, a step ahead of where you're at right now. I think that's, that's the trick is, um, you know, and, and, and I remember, for example, when I was, you know, maybe 20, um, is when I really like, you know, got into this and was like, okay, like there's other, there's other hunts, you know, I, I was researching enough and looking at enough magazine articles and stuff back then and hunting forums and seeing, wow, you know, guys are killing big mule deer in in Colorado. Guys are killing, you know, big bulls in Utah, guys are, you know, killing, you know, whatever big bulls down in Arizona. And, and so that that's when I kind of started. Well, the the irony at that time was you have no money and you have no time, you know, and, but, but you're, you're trying to, you know, the, the trick is to be forward thinking enough that to realize that like, yeah, you know, it it cost me hundreds of dollars uh, every year to start building points, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was. Um, but now, now I still don't have any time necessarily, but I have more money. Um, and so now, now I'm glad, you know, because it's, and, and my point with that is, you know, some of these States, like, you know, look at, uh, a Nevada non-resident elk tag, it's like $1,200, not, you know, not including the, uh, the years of buying the hunting license yeah, and, uh, you know, and then the gas and the time and the scouting and the gear, but, you know if if you can be forward thinking and just kind of make that sacrifice i think uh, you know in 10 years later you you're like oh man i'm so glad that i started putting in yeah. points for you know and, and and so for you you know kind of that you know you're 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 probably on the the tail end of your you know your kids are about to move out of the house in the next 5 or 10 years it sounds like um, you know, for you, it's like, well, in you know, you don't have any time right now, but maybe in 10 years you'll have all the time you want, maybe be retired or something. <laughs> it's like, man, Boy, 10 I years ago. I,
1: I, I, I would think, and, and yeah, again, there's, there's so many resources now available to help guys look at different states and the, yeah. up, which bonus point systems they can utilize and work in their favor. And in the past, you really had to do a lot of research and, and footwork on your own to find out, you know, and I think that intimidated guys for a long time to know which states – they should apply for, how to apply, how does it work, and now there's so many companies and websites and and, um, even apps available to help you do that that you can navigate through that process more seamlessly, and and, uh, it makes it much more simplistic for the everyday guys that aren't hunting for a living but kind of doing it as a hobby on the side. It to be able to get through that process and understand it, so I think we should utilize it and take more advantage of it. I think guys are.
0: Yeah, you know, I was listening to uh, one of the Epic Outdoor podcasts with Jason Carter and uh, Bronson and and those guys, and they were. He, Jason was talking about his first, you know, kind of years getting into the business that they're in, and back then, you know, this was definitely before cell phones and probably before the internet was real big. They were still faxing things around. He said. Him and yeah. his dad, they were they were literally and Adam, they were literally driving from state to state to state to state each year to sit in the board meetings or the rack meetings or whatever it was to hear the regulations on the changes so that they could update the thing. You know, and it was a very physical, like if, if you you know, if you lived in southern Arizona and wanted to understand how to hunt Montana, like, where the heck were you gonna figure that out? You know, and now like yeah. you're saying, geez, you can you know, I could have it right here in front of me on my phone. Um, you know with with a service like epic you know outdoors or a epic hunts or a go hunt or something like that you know it's just crazy the amount of information that we have at our fingertips yeah and that's now.
1: good perspective it's funny you mentioned adam adam and i went to college together down at suu oh, so really? it's fun to see him. yeah and it's, again it's such a small world but to see him making and having not just the success he's having in hunting, but, um, making a living of it. Uh, it's neat. And so it's fun to hear that perspective cause I knew Adam was a big bow hunter and I was a big bow hunter and that was kind of the camaraderie that we shared initially was just the fact that we both loved the bow hunt. So it's fun to see him now doing so well. And, and you know, he does a ton of work with guiding and outfitting. And, uh, it's just been fun to connect with him here 20, you know, almost 25 years later and to see him doing well, that's fun. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So you're you're there in kind of northern Utah, um, and and you I I'm making a big assumption here that you probably hunt somewhere along the, the Wasatch, the famed Wasatch Front uh, mountain range, yeah. and that's, you know I, I don't have a problem saying that, and you probably don't either, because anyone that's been there and hunted it and seen it knows that 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 doesn't narrow it down at all. Um, yeah, that's
1: a big unit up yeah. here, it's, it, and it's bigger than guys think. It's not, you know, it's interesting, though, when we go out and hunt in other states, and you know, like when you go to Colorado, it actually makes the Wasatch look small. The Wasatch <laughs> Front is just basically one main, one big north-south ridgeline, and there's such a population base here, and a lot of the country that we hunt is more accessible than you'd think. So usually up here, within a two-hour hike, Dustin, you can get almost anywhere you want to go on the front. It doesn't make it easier to hunt. Um, but there's a lot. It, it gets hit hard, um, and it gets, you know, frustrating for a lot of guys that you get out and you scout and you hunt hard in the summer to try to get a plan together and a buck that you want to hunt, and then the hunt rolls around and it gets hit pretty hard up here. And then you go to places uh... in other states where the country is as big, if not bigger, but it's deeper. There's you can get, you can get ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty miles plus back into a drainage or an area, and you just don't see anybody. So uh, the benefit they have here on the Wasatch Front is it doesn't get rifle hunted um, in the, in the, in the the I guess, the traditional Wasatch Front bow-only area. It really doesn't get rifle hunted. You can't rifle hunt it. So that's what draws a lot of guys to the front is the fact that there's no rifle mule deer hunts here, but it doesn't make it any easier to hunt with a bow. It's a tough unit to hunt. Um, and the numbers aren't as great as what you would think either. We go out and we hunt it hard, but you never see the kind of numbers that we see in, in other states in terms of deer and even mature deer. So, uh, yeah, I've hunted basically because I came up here for grad school and I, I didn't even start hunting the front until about 10 years ago. Um, but I basically hunt it because it's right in my backyard and it was convenient to be able to scout and hunt, you know, right here in my backyard. Uh, so that's when I started hunting here and... You know, we've been fortunate to really get on some and, and take some phenomenal mule deer with our bows, me and my friends that I hunt with, but it's it's not, you know, guys that are looking at it from out of state, you know, there are other states that offer as many if not more deer in numbers and more mature deer, and you don't deal with some of the population problems you have right here on the front, too. Yeah. So, more out of convenience than anything, we hunt it hard here, um, and we've done great, but it's, it's a tough, I mean, it's one of the most physically difficult hunts we've, you know, we hunt every year. And I think that's the challenge that brings us back um, is because it is a tough hunt. And when you harvest something with your bow up here, you know, there's such a sense of accomplishment because it is not easy. It's it's one of the most physically demanding hunts I, I, I do every year.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, having hunted it a, a couple of years when I lived up there, um, you know, that's, that's, that nailed it right on the head. I think thousands of guys uh, filter through there throughout the year maybe coming to the Hunt Expo or driving through on i-15 or whatever and they see that mountain range and they think Colorado or they think Wyoming backcountry it looks from the outside looking in it looks like you could get lost for miles and days and our buddy Mark kind of calls it my I think he calls it micro uh, micro mountain ranges or something like that where yeah you know, yeah, you could start at the bottom and hike clear to the top of that peak and it, you're going to gain, you know, maybe 3000 feet elevation or whatever and be up in the, you know, above timberline, but then right down on the next side, there's another road. Um, yeah. and it's, it, it really is, man, that's uh that it's kind of the icon of Utah. Um, and that's, that's what people think about when they think of mule deer in Utah, but talk, so talk, talk about, and, and the pressure, like you mentioned is, is very heavy. Talk about, Uh, kind of that competitive hunting and what do you do uh, you know to either use that to your advantage or get rid of that pressure or what do you do there?
1: Yeah and and it's actually it's interesting up here because the first thing I would say that term competitive hunting I think is really true up here because there's so many guys Um, but boy 99% of them are really respectful about it and they know there's other guys hunting you know when you go out hunting you're probably going to see somebody else or sign that somebody was in a certain area so it's competitive in a sense that there's just a lot of guys that are hunting up here, um, and you have to take that into account when you're hunting up here. If you find a good deer, you know, you have to almost assume that other guys are looking at it, that other guys are going to be watching it and hunting it. So that's kind of our mentality as well, is if we find – and we bounce all over. Um, you know, we, we try not to stay in one drain year after year after year after year. So in our preseason scouting, which we usually start in, late June or early July, we're bouncing all over the place. I try to hit as many spots as possible, and you kind of just keep track of if you find a buck in one drainage that you want to come back to and find, you know, you make note of it, and then you go to another drainage and then another drainage. And we try to look in areas that we don't think will get hit as hard, but even that's getting difficult because um, there's just more and more guys getting up into the high country. We try to hit as many places as possible and keep track of which deer are the most intriguing to us. And, you know, there have been situations in the past, too, Dustin, where we found good deer, but we just kind of thought there's no way we're going to have this deer to ourselves. There's going to be other guys coming through that we're pretty sure other guys will see this deer. And even if they're a really good deer, we may move on to something else that we may think realistically we can have to ourselves or at least have less pressure. And then a lot of times we try to hunt from the top down. We'll try to get above them, set up a, a spine camp, a baby camp, or a base camp above the deer. Because usually the pressure will come from the bottom up. Not always, but usually it'll come from the bottom up. And a lot of times these deer will go high. And so we try to, uh, so much of what we do is try to set up an escape route and get above them and try to play the wind coming down on them. Um, Because there just seems to be, and and again, to the point earlier, there's a lot of guys that will come in for a day or two um, or in and out the same day. And usually if that's the case, they're coming from the bottom up or coming below the deer. And so we try to stay above them if we can. Um, and then the other component of this is, you know, there's a lot of weekend warriors, a lot of pressure on the weekends. And then during the week that seems to dissipate a little bit. So, you know, we'll always go out opening weekend and try to hunt on weekends when we can, but there's a lot of in and out one, two day hunt during the week. And the pressure is, is minimized that way too. So we can be a little more, um, strategic in when we're hunting and a lot of our deer that we hunt and kill, we're taking two, three, four, five, six weeks down the road after that initial push of opening weekend has subsided
0: yeah and that so you and you answered one of the first questions i was going to bring up from the uh the instagram post uh muley magnet asked that exact question uh, do you typically hunt the same drainages year after year or do you go find the biggest buck and focus on him and it, it sounds like you're sounds like you're pretty flexible
1: um yeah, we are, and I think you have to be up here because, you know, there are some drainages we've killed big deer in one year, and the next year there's nothing. It's really interesting, um, it, and, and I mean really hit and miss. like you'll find one drainage one year that's loaded, and you got three or four bucks you'd like to kill, and then the next year there's nothing in that drainage that you'd be remotely interested in. So over time I think everybody, no matter what state you're in, or, or but we're talking mule deer, you'll have your kind of little sweet spots that you like where you have, two or three drainages you like and you know how to hunt them and you know where to stash your gear and put your camp and get your water and and then you have to have other options in case that drainage just doesn't have anything in there. So we do. We bounce around a lot. We're always trying to find new areas. We're always trying to learn new areas. Um, And then if along the way we find a deer we really like, you know, about a week or two prior to the hunt, if we can keep track of that deer and relocate him again and feel like, okay, this isn't a transitionary for this deer. We think he's here. Then that last week or two before the hunt starts, we we really try to focus in on, is there a water source? Can we get water stashed? Can we stash gear and make make a plan that way? But it's different every year with drainage we spend most of our time in. Yeah.
0: Um, man there's so many questions um on this post that and I've got plenty of my own, but I better make sure we get through a lot of these too um some of them you've already answered, but I'll just kind of roll through some of these zach underscore benedict underscore, and maybe you know some of these people but um describe a scenario you've been in when conditions weren't ideal or it didn't seem like a stock was possible, but you ended up killing a buck anyway. <clears throat>
1: Uh, you know, it's and it happens. I'm trying to think of one specific. Um, most of it, honestly, comes down to wind and cover. We found deer that are bedded up in the wide open, and you just can't make a play on them. This this was especially true in Colorado uh, a couple years ago, where we would find deer. And it's interesting in Colorado. Sometimes you'll find these deer just bedded right out in the open, and that makes it so difficult with a bow to try to stock in and move in on a deer. And then the other is wind direction always comes into play. And, and not just the wind direction now when you spot a deer, but what it's going to be doing when the thermals change in the mid-afternoon. So, uh, But one specific example I'll give, I killed a deer three years ago here in Utah. I was on hunting alone and backpacked into an area and spotted these deer a mile and a half, almost two miles away caught him just for a second there was a group of bucks and this one deer was there was one deer in the group that I thought I'd go about 175 and he was hard horned it was late in September and I just thought man if I could kill him on my own it would be great so I ended up I took about two hours and positioned myself I got above him and caught him bedded down in a group of jack pines um about 250 yards below me and the conditions were terrible um because he was with another group of deer. There were about seven or eight bucks in the group. He was by far the best one, but they bedded in this group of jack pines that was kind of isolated. And I thought that the chances of me slipping into that group of pines is so minuscule, um, without being seen, without being smelled, but it was kind of a challenge that I thought, I, I at least got to try it. I'm up here. I got a buck that I'd like to kill. I, I can only hunt today. So I had to be more aggressive in that scenario. If, you know, and again, up here, if you back out, you know, you come in the next day, those deer may be gone, they may have been bumped out, so in that situation, I had a deer that I wanted to kill, I had eyes on him, he was bedded down, and I thought, I have to try to be aggressive here, so I tried to get in a location where I felt like the wind wouldn't kill me, and up in these high mountain steep terrain situations, it's tough because the wind will shift, the wind the will change on you, so you have to make your best educated guess, and then make a play, and that's what I did, I ended up trying to get parallel to this group of deer hoping that if the wind's either blowing up or down which it usually does at least there's no north south east west wind shift right now i'm just going to try to move in kind of parallel to them and it took me forever um but i ended up getting right in on these deer i was the, the deer went into this group of jack pines and kind of split up and I knew that the biggest deer bedded on the north side of the pine patch. And so I actually got right in the middle of this pine patch and I had deer to my left that were, I was within 10, 15 yards of it's funny because I actually could smell them. I was right mm. in there. I could smell them. Um, and then I had deer, I hoped he hadn't moved and I hoped he was still on the north side of the pine patch to my right. And when I got into this pine patch. I knew it was gonna happen at any minute. So I had obviously had my arrow knocked and I had my bow ready and I knew something was gonna happen at any time because you get that close to those animals they're it's not gonna last very long before they bust you. So I was actually in this little cluster of pines trying to figure out where they were for maybe two minutes, not even that. And then I heard everything break loose and I heard deer run to my north and I heard deer run to my south. And I hoped he was in the group to my north and I literally ran to the edge of the pines and I caught him, It separated from the group. And it just crossed this little ravine and stopped. And, you know, sometimes mule deer will do that. If they're not quite sure what's up, they'll get to a distance they think is safe. Then they stop and look back. And that was just enough of a window for me to get an arrow in and to kill him. But that was a situation that everything was working against that situation. They, he had multiple deer with them, which gives him, you know, more eyes and ears out and about. The wind was questionable. They were isolated. So I had to be a little more aggressive there. And that was one that I really was lucky on. Um but I had to make a play. Sometimes when you're hunting with a bow and you're, you you have to make a play of do I have the time and do I have the luxury of of holding off yeah. or do I have to be a little more aggressive here and try to push it. And in public land in an area where it's kind of, quote, to your statement earlier, more competitive and you don't know who's going to be in that area that evening or the next morning, sometimes you have to be a little more aggressive. And in that situation it paid off. I was very, very lucky to harvest that deer. Um, And I know that. I know that, man, that could have gone south so many different ways, but it it helped to be a little more aggressive.
0: So you you mentioned uh, that you you stalked in and and you, you know, you kind of said you hoped that he hadn't moved. Um, Talk about what goes through your mind while you're stalking in and you maybe can't keep sight of a buck. Um, Or, you know, there's a long period of time between, uh, you know, when you last seen him and when you're uh, heading into stock. Just kind of talk about what goes through your mind and what your strategy is there.
1: Well, and in that specific situation, there was a little ravine that cut up towards the pine patch. So I knew if I could slip into that ravine, you know, so much of it is just being quiet. I go into what I call, other guys call the same thing, stealth mode, where you get within 150 yards. And how many times have we gotten within 150 yards of deer and and everything falls apart then? Mm -hmm. So you get to that 150-yard mark. And, you know, by then I'd already dropped my pack and I'd taken my shoes off and was moving into my socks, but it was so methodical. Just, I knew I had to keep going and I couldn't stop and hang up forever because you're questioning the wind and you're questioning whether they will get up and feed. And I think when you got somebody spotting for you and they can guide you in and they can talk to you about what the deer are doing, you have the luxury of being a little more patient because somebody's got eyes on them for you where when you're going in alone and you're kinda of going in blind like I was, you almost have to kinda of just keep things going because if you hold off too long, the window busts you, they may get up and move without you knowing, and we've all done that where you you take so much time and you get into where you want to be and the deer are gone and you don't know what happened. So, that is that was going through my mind in that scenario was I had to just keep going. I, I didn't have the luxury of waiting too long, but it still took me a long time to get in on this group of deer But I wanted to make sure I didn't feel like I was so aggressive that I was noisy. Um, It was a very slow, methodical, um, there were times I had to back out and take a different route, and times I had to back up and take a different route again to get where I wanted to be. But I wanted to feel like I was constantly moving in on this deer so that if he did get up and go, I was in position to kill or position to shoot. So it's that. You know, but again, if you have somebody spotting for you and, and kind of got eyes on them for you, or if you literally have eyes on them, you can be a little more patient. Uh, and that's that, uh, you know, I, I I just submitted an article to Eastman about this where there are some situations you have to push it and you got to know when to go and when to hold back. And in that situation, I felt like I got this little window. I got to push it. And in fact, that's what happened this year. The deer I took in Utah this year was the same thing. I was in hunting alone and I had these two deer located and... I had a little window where I thought there was no wind, which up here is rare. Usually you got a pretty strong wind blowing up or down, and I caught them first thing in the morning when the wind is usually not as active. I caught them in a spot. The minute I spotted these two good deer, and they were good deer, they were, the one I took was probably 165, maybe a little better than that, but they were both that class. And I realized the minute I saw them, I had them bedded up in an area where there was some cover I could put between me and them. I thought, while well, they're down and there's no wind, and I got a little avalanche shoot running, to the right of them i need to go now um and i had to just drop everything um get myself moving you know i i had to decide do i hold off on this or do i go and i realized no i gotta go i gotta make this happen right now while things right. are in my favor and it worked out so there's that constant kind of checking yourself of am i being too aggressive do i need to pull back do i have the time or do i need to push it here do i need to try to make things happen while i have this little window yeah
0: do you see a direct correlation between some of the biggest bucks that you've killed and hunting solo?
1: No. Um, again, it's funny. The last the last two animals I've harvested here in Utah have been when I've gone in alone. But I do look back and realize there was more luck involved with those. There really was. It, you're so much more effective when you're hunting with somebody. You You just are. When you can work together with somebody, you know, Matt Bateman, my good hunting friend and I, are so much more effective when you're hunting with somebody and you can cover an escape route and make a play on an animal at the same time, your odds go up for both guys. And I would right. say they, go, they they double or triple where to be able to get in on a mule deer in the high country and stalk him and kill him on your own, completely on your own, you know, the odds are probably less than 5% of the time it'll actually work on a mature deer. Um, but when you have two guys working together where you can make a play on the deer in their bed or if they're up feeding and you got one guy making a play and then if you can get another guy positioned in an escape route your odds just skyrocket not that you should harvest every time but your odds go from what i would say is 5% on your own your odds go to 20 30 40% success that you'll have an opportunity so i think uh, you know i just look at matt and the deer that my friend matt has harvested over the last you know that we've been hunting together for 10 years and most of the time it's when we've been able to make a team play on it and things work out so, so that's where the benefit got... of having a, a buddy you're hunting with comes into play and if you're both on the same page and working together man it, it really does help yeah
0: guys like you and i though are spoiled you know you've got a guy like matt and i've got my brother and we've hunted with mark and uh cory you know and i it the the answer though, is it depends on who your hunting buddy is.
1: <laughs> oh, you know, and it really does. I, you know, and, and there are few and far between to find somebody that you're really on the same page with. And yeah. that's, you know, there's, and it, and it, it, means so much more too when you can share it with, you know, there's something very satisfying about harvesting an animal, a good mature mule deer in the high country on your own. It's a different type of satisfaction, but when you're with somebody and get to share it with somebody and you've teamed up together on it, um, it's so rewarding, and it's you know i i I get as much joy watching and helping a friend of mine than anything now oh, yeah. so i i've I've harvested enough animals with my bow that when I can be involved with somebody else, it is incredible i I almost enjoy that more now, yeah,
0: yeah, you know and my i I think of my brother um and he's he's been consistently killing some big bucks the last you know three or four or five years or whatever yeah um and most of his, ironically, are, are usually solo, which must mean that I'm a bad hunting partner because <laughs> he never kills. Yeah,
1: you're, you're you're holding him back. Yeah, gosh, yeah. I need
0: to get out of his way. Um. Oh, well, let's roll through another question here. So, big old Big Chief Wackabuck. Um. You know, you're probably familiar with Henry. He's 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 a, a an experienced yep. bow hunter. How many uh, scouting days do you average a month during the summer? and uh and then a side question was, "How does your back hurt from carrying Bateman around, but you don't have to answer that <laughs> one." <laughs>
1: Yeah, I try to stay in shape all year just so I can I can haul Bateman around and and, and help him out when he's struggling up there on the mountain. Um, yeah, right. So I, you know, during the summer we start we start scouting, and again, usually we don't really start hitting it hard till late June, early July. A lot of the things we do prior to June is just getting my legs under me, going for hikes in June to see some new country and to learn terrain and learn trails. But gear so transitional in June that. You know, we feel like we spend a lot of time scouting for specific deer in June. Come July, August, they've moved on because they're still moving into their summer and fall areas. But well, we and, get on the ground. And, you know, you yeah. you
0: can, you 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 can pretty much tell if a buck's going to be big in June or not. But you you don't have any idea what he's how big or what he's going to be. Yeah, and,
1: it's, and you just you not know. so we do try to hike in June just to get legs going and get in shape. And then July, you know, I usually try to get out. It, again, so much of it depends on what's going on at home, but two to three times a week, um, we try to get out. And it's funny, the older we get, you know, I used to get up all the time at 2.30 in the morning to backpack in an area and scout it and then come back out. And it's so much harder now as I get older mm-hmm. to get up at two in the morning to go scout, then to come home and to work and to be the way that I need to be dialed in with my kids and family. So now, we actually spend more overnights every summer scouting where we take off work and hike in and get the quick evening scout, you know, glassing session in. And then we can be up there looking in the morning and get off and get home in time to get work and stuff done. But that we spend, we did more of that the last few summers than anything. You actually get two scouting sessions in and I'm not killing myself by waking up at 2, 2.30 in the morning and then trying to get home and function. So realistically, we try to do two a week. In July and August, if we can pull it off, and it, you know, it actually gives you more of a chance too to test overnight gear, to to check more of your lightweight hunting stuff, your sleeping bags, backpacks, and and hauling that in and out, in and out, gets you almost in better shape than waking up at two in the morning and hiking in light. So there's a lot that's going into that, but that's our approach now more than it has been in the past. Is trying to do overnight scouting sessions where you can get a quick evening, morning, in and then get out and still be on top of stuff at home
0: would you say you're more apt to spot or find a big a big buck scouting in early in the morning or late in the evening
1: you know it's it's been interesting how that's varied from location to location but definitely in the morning we just see and it's funny up here on the front up on the Wasatch front evenings are tough i mean it is tough some evenings are just dead and we definitely seem to see more movement activity in the mornings um by far, I would say.
0: Yeah. Um, and you get all these questions from guys who don't need any help whatsoever. Um, yeah. <laughs> Finch, Finch outdoors. Like he needs help killing big mule deer. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. He struggles. Yeah. <laughs> seriously.
0: Um, high country, uh, scent control. What's your routine or do you worry about it or what do you do there?
1: Yeah. I used to, you know, and I still do. We're very, we try to be so strategic and careful with our scent, uh, hunting and it, but there's only so much you can do. And the older I, am and the more I spend time in, in the outdoors, the more I realize it is just tough to, to get ahead of the deer on this. But anytime we go and we find an area that we're trying to hunt, we always try to vent shield wipes and wipe down. We try to, we literally will try to find places we can, we can bathe almost like in Colorado a few years ago, we were jumping in day, every day we would jump into <laughs> these icy streams and lake I mean, it, it's so cold sometimes, but it does help to just clean off, um, But even then, ultimately, if you clean off every day and you're wiping down the scent shield wipes and using the scent control clothing, but you're not playing the wind right, it's not going to matter. So, you know, we always have scent shield wipes and try to keep ourselves clean and have a change of clothes. Um, You have to do that. But ultimately, it it really comes down to the wind. I mean, you can, we've seen guys that don't do any of that, but if they can play the wind right, the deer, they won't smell you. They won't. You know, if you yeah. if, if if you can play the wind, that's the best scent control you can you can possibly utilize now and that's not always uh you know, the sometimes the winds just doesn't work in your favor, but on the opposite end of the spectrum you could do crazy stuff to control your scent and the wind will kill it. It, mm-hmm. it it won't matter. So I hope that answers that question. It's not being you know, there's nothing really new there, but that is something we definitely try to always be doing, it's keeping ourselves clean and fresh while we're hunting. Yeah
0: um how how sensitive is a you know a big buck to uh, to smelling you um maybe compared to like hearing you or seeing you well that's
1: the scent is number one i mean it yeah. just is you'll have deer that you are totally out of sight from and you haven't made a sound and they bust you know so uh, in my opinion the wind is the number one sense that animals utilize i mean you'll see a deer in, in their bed and you're 200 yards from them and the wind shifts their head comes up and they don't know where you are. They can't see you or, or they haven't, you know, they haven't heard you. But they're gone. So by far, in my opinion, the number one sense that big mule deer use by far is smell. They don't have to see or heal to, to have you know that situation go south in a hurry. So that is the scent, the sense of an animal that we try to play on and be aware of more than anything.
0: Well, and the old you know, seeing you and hearing you, the old adage that I, that I um, think is, is, you know, relatively true. Um, you know, a big buck will, or maybe a bull elk, a big buck will, they'll, uh, hear you three times. They'll see you twice, but they'll only smell you once and they are gone. You know, you, we, we've all been there where you, you get pegged down, um, line of sight. Um, and, and they either know what you are and don't necessarily know that you're a threat maybe, but they, they can't identify you for sure. Or you know they're they're not they're just not gonna risk it and blow out of there because they don't know what you are exactly hearing you I mean that that could be as long as you don't make a you know something that's unnatural meaning like a you know a metal clanking sound or something like that but just you know cracking a stick or crinkling a rock that could be that could be anything you know as far as they go um, but man that smell is undeniable and they will. 100 percent i've never seen them just sit there and smell me uh, and let me get a shot off or something like that
1: yeah yeah and that again it's so hard sometimes in the high country to play the wind perfectly every time but Hmm. again they'll i've had deer actually in the late season rut there was a situation up here in northern utah during the the late rut hunt where you know you've heard guys rattle mule deer in and you'll see deer late season um trash in a tree, when they get aggressive in the rutting, they'll trash a tree, they'll trash a bush, and I had a situation up here a few years ago where I was trying to get positioned up on a hillside, and there was no way to get to it but to just plow through this really thick oak, and I thought, well, I just got to plow through the oak, it's going to make all kinds of noise, but once I get positioned on that hillside, I'll have the rest of the day to hunt, and something may come past me, and (laughs) I... I got through the oak, and it was just ridiculous how noisy I was. There was no way around it. And I got set up, and within five minutes, I had these two bucks coming to me because they thought I was another deer trashing a, uh, you know, a bush, and they were coming in to challenge me, and I'm killing one of them. Um, so, but that would never happen with smell. You know, you never see an animal wanting to be aggressive with you because they smell you, you know you're a, a human, and they come in on you. So, yeah, the smell is the one scent they have that, we just, you just cannot try to compensate for enough and you have to take that into account in every situation if possible. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Uh, trex underscore SoCal underscore adventures, uh, wants to know about your optics setup. Um, what, what do you run in? And then he, he, he asked another question. How close, uh, attention do you pay to wins the wind during scouting season? And we, we kind of touched on that. I, you know, scouting is definitely different than actually stalking a deer, but um, you know, yeah. m- maybe you can touch on that real quick and then go to your optic setup.
1: Yeah, and even in scouting, a lot of it, you know, when we're out and about, we do try to take into account, but what the wind may be doing in certain situations, morning, evening, you know. But usually, hot air rises in the morning, wind blows down in the evening, so we're that's generally consistent. And so much of it, it it's. Even preseason, it's more than that you can't tell. You just never know when the front's going to come in and the wind's going to be blowing from the north or the south. You just don't know that in a scouting situation, especially if you're scouting. A month in advance, you you really don't know anything more than hot air rises, and yeah. you got to play that, and then you just play it situational. So that's just very situational. Um, in terms of optics, I, you know, it's funny when I'm scouting, I usually, it depends on how far we're going, how deep we're going on scouting trips. I have a pair of little 10 by 32 Shurovskis that I run when I'm scouting, and then um, just because they're lighter and they're smaller, and then I, I have two spotting scopes. I have a big Shurovsky, you know, um, a big eye that we use if we're going not too crazy far but when we're hunting um and you got to go a little bit lighter because of all the hunting gear you have i actually have a smaller spotting scope Uh, you know it's a brand i found at cabela's it's the cabela's i think it's the crotos um it's a it's a smaller spotting scope um i'm trying to think of what power it goes to it's like a 15 to 30 or 15 to 35 uh, but it's, it's a smaller scope. It's a little more compact. So when we're bow hunting, you know, I have a lightweight tripod that I use. It's a, I think a Manfrotto tripod, a new mm-hmm. tripod set up. And I've actually made it lighter where I've cut, I've pulled out some of the legs. You don't need a tripod when we're bow hunting in the back country that goes to like five feet tall, usually on in a bow hunting backcountry situation, you know, you're sitting down glassing and sitting down on your uh, spotting scope. So I took some of the legs out of that spotting scope to cut the weight in half. I cut my panning handle to make it smaller, um, just trying to cut weight as I can that's practical. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we're hunting, um, the binoculars I use are the, are the geovids that have the angle compensation range finder. And that, The problem is there you're getting into some pretty high dollar optics there. Anytime you're talking European optics, you're spending a lot of money so there are some brands now that you really don't you know that are that are really good brands that the quality is pretty darn good too Leopold is one Vortex is one where you don't have to break the bank on some of these European optics to get good quality um so you know that's going to be situational for everybody but you know I use one pair of optics when I'm scouting and then when I'm hunting I bring the angle compensation optics that I have into play. And then when we're going not really deep, I'll use my bigger Swarovski spotting scope. And when we go a little deeper and again, it's so funny. We've seen people out when we're bow hunting in the backcountry. you know, we bow hunt, bow hunt in Colorado where your day pack weighs, 35 to 40 pounds just your day pack because you got all your hunting gear you got mm-hmm. your bow and you got your Spotting scope your tripod your but and it's so interesting how heavy your hunting gear is and then we'll see hikers out There in the same country, you know You're seven eight nine miles in and here comes a hiker running You know, mm-hmm. there's a group of a group of 70 year old guys that come running past you. You can see them up on a ridge or a group of women that go running by and they got a little fanny pack five yeah
0: five pound you know a water bottle
1: and you're like i'm up here dying because i got a 40 pound pack and here's you think you're all that in this country that you're you know you're you're this rugged hunting individual up there in this crazy country and then somebody will go running by with their little fanny pack and water bottle, (laughs) and you're like oh if i didn't have all this heavy hunting gear so it's funny how that has happened to us a few times but we do try to go light and try to try to minimize some of the gear. Do we really need it? Do we not need it? Um, and as, as the older I've, I've got, you know, I'm in my mid forties now. We really try to pinpoint what we really need, what's essential and what's not to try to dump the stuff that isn't something we really have to have in our pack.
0: Are you guys typically, um, well, and this is so. This is one of the one of the three questions that uh, you know Red Fletch's, and we all know Red Fletch um, that yep. he that he asked, and I'm only going to limit him to one. Uh, maybe maybe a, well, there's a couple here. What uh, what is in your backpack? And he emphasized before you kill your
1: buck. <laughs> so. Uh. So again, usually. I'll I'll talk more of the backcountry hunting stuff. Usually, you know, if we're going to hunt, go into an area and hunt for a few days, you hike in and you have your base camp, and then we're out and about every day hunting with only what we need for that day. Um, Because usually you're within a mile or two or maybe three of your base camp when you're out hunting, and usually if you need to get back to your base camp, you can. So we typically, when we're out hunting, even in a backcountry situation, in the day we don't have our sleeping bag, we don't have a tent, Um, but on the on those day hunts like that when you're out from your base camp I'll always I just always make sure I have this sounds probably redundant to everybody but water I always at least carry two bottles of water um, a water purifier I have my little first aid kit and this is going to be different for everybody and and you could spend a whole podcast on just what you have in your first aid kit but some of those essentials I always carry a sewing kit in there I carry um, ibuprofen or Excedrin. I carry a pocket knife. I carry a lighter. I carry matches. I the day the out and about day hunts, we carry we try to carry what we need minimally. We have our rain gear, um, and I usually always have you know just an extra layer of clothes in case you do have weather when you're hunting high country. The weather changes on a dime. That's one thing I couldn't and I never you can never foresee coming even when you're checking the weather every day is you can have a freak storm come through and if you don't have rain gear and stuff to stay warm you're miserable Um, at least I am I hate hunting when I'm soaked or when I'm really cold I have a hard time warming back up so you know a couple two years ago we were in Colorado and I was glassing for Matt and Matt was moving in we had a huge deer spotted that we were trying to get Matt set up on and we ended up just having to sit up on this deer all day and the weather moved in and we were just getting crushed with hail and snow and rain. And luckily we had good rain gear. We were warm. I always carry gloves and a beanie just to stay warm and dry. Whatever you can do to stay warm and dry. And then I always have enough food for that day. So I'll always have a couple sandwiches and then you can get into a whole different discussion on what food you eat in the high country mm-hmm. um, but we try to get a variety of food when you're hunting for a week or ten days or five days and you're choking down nasty dehydrated food loaded with sodium and it's the same thing day after day that will make your hunt shorter you don't feel good you lose your energy you, lose, you become lethargic You the food becomes something you're choking down rather than you're enjoying so we try to keep our food a variety of foods day-to-day. We I always have flavoring, so if I'm filtering and pumping water, I can flavor it up a little bit. So that's a little component to give you a psychological edge if you're on one of these backcountry Physically demanding hunts to give yourself a variety of food and know what works for you. And that's something that you can bring into play when in your preseason scouting where try different foods. See what works for you. See what you like. See what you don't. I know guys that have gone into, into these situations where maybe it's their first kind of extended backcountry hunt. And two or three days in, they're struggling because they're physically exhausted. But then the food isn't working for them. And they're you not getting the your... minerals, the nutrients they need. And that's something some guys don't really consider prior to a hunt is, take the time during the summer to figure out what works for you and what you like and what you don't like.
0: Do you split your food into days? Are you one of those guys like us that's gallon Ziploc bagging uh, per day food? So it's all all set up when you go in or do you just pack it all in and, and then divvy it up once you get in there? On, on like I definitely
1: a... try to step. Yeah. I try to separate it going in. So you, you know, and again, this goes back to this and this, this is a really important point too for guys is to, again, if you're just going in for a day or two, it's not as necessary. That's not a big deal. But when you're going in for three, four, five days or more, know what your caloric intake needs to be each day. You got to realize you're so much better on the mountain when you have enough food. And it's almost hard sometimes when you're hunting a higher elevations, which you sometimes are for mule deer and you're hiking a lot, and you're hunting a lot, and you're moving a lot. Sometimes you just don't take the time to sit down and eat and to get food and, and to get nutrients and calories in your body. And A lot of guys don't take the time to force themselves to eat while they're hunting like that. And then day two, day three, they're exhausted. So that's something we've had to figure out over time and learn from other guys over time. There's a lot of guys on Instagram and on podcasts willing to share. And I think we all need to take note of it because I've learned a lot listening to other guys talking about make sure you know how much food realistically you need to go in and hunt like this. And if you need 4,000 calories a day, try it out ahead of time figure out and go you know understand where you can get your 4,000 calories from and figure out what you like do you like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches do you like jerky do you like fruit whatever it is for you i would take the time to know it and then that's one thing we do ahead of time is we separate day one day two day three day four day five so you don't have to do that in the back country you know if you're hunting in the back country and you get back to camp at night and you're exhausted and it's cold the last thing you want to have to do is lay your food out and try to get food organized for the next next day. It's just one more thing. So if you've done that ahead of time, oh. it just makes you more efficient when you're actually out hunting. You can take you don't have to take the time to do that. You can focus on other things. Yeah. Although it's kind of funny, Dustin, one quick story. We did that last year two years ago in Colorado. We found the area that we wanted to hunt. We've gone in a couple times and scouted. So we made a trip out there and just hauled all of our food in. Uh, we stashed two camps, a week's supply of food in one camp and a week a week's supply of food in another camp and they got hit by bears. So when we actually went in the <laughs> hunt it was gone. We had nothing. It was a bear came in, get one of our camps and it I mean it was horrible. We backpacked in and it was like the only thing the bear left was one of our little camp pillows, our backpacking pillows was laying there with a claw mark on it. It was almost like it was touching us. Like it was probably it took everything we had, took our tents, sleeping bags, trashed it, took everything, took all of our food. And then here was this one little pillow with a claw mark in it. So yeah, it was—it was, it was um, probably
0: Red Fletches or Justin Finch. Uh, you or know, one well, of those guys I didn't even think about that. I'll have
1: to ask. I'll have to <laughs> ask him, but, but we definitely do. We, and that's part of the psychological component of going into a hunt too, is just feeling like you are prepared. Feeling like I've taken the time to figure out what works for me. I've taken the time to prepare. And that is a huge element of backcountry hunting is feeling like you're not just going in novel for the first time and you're going to try stuff out for the first time. Mm -hmm. You've taken the time to try to figure that out throughout the summer and it gives you an edge. It gives you a psychological kind of um, a reassurance that you you're not going to run into something you don't feel like you planned for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're the same way Um, every night when I get back, um, you know, just kind of while the dinner process is going and boiling water, whatever. Before I go to bed, I just, uh, you know, once I get backpacked in, this is, I'm I'm making an assumption on like a seven day hunt, for example. Um, I, the, the day I hike in, I pull all my food out unless I'm in bear country. I pull all of it out and I put it in my tent and then in the day, one gallon Ziploc bags. And then like you're saying, it makes it real easy each night so that I don't even have to think about it in the morning. Um, you know, yep. I'll, I'll fill up my bladder. I'll make sure my bladder is relatively full, or however much I need for the next day of water, and then I just throw uh, one gallon, one day's worth of food in the pack. And so I know, aside from my my breakfast, uh, which is usually a pop tart for us, we'll pull the I'll pull the pop tart out um so that it's ready in the morning, and I don't you know. But then everything else, my snacks, my lunch, my dinner, uh, all the other food for the day is just in my pack. And then you know whether we end up. You know how it is. Sometimes you wake up and you know you're back to camp in an hour because you didn't see anything glass or whatever. And then other times, boom, you're you're gone and you're not back till you know ten o'clock at night or or even longer sometimes. So then it's just you got one whole day's worth of food there.
1: Yeah, and it's common in some of those situations. To your point, you go out to glass and you see something, and if you got to move and it's a ways away, you never know if you're going to be gone all day. This happened to us so many times over the years. I, you know, and I think again back to when we hunt Colorado. You'll go up in the morning. You'll find a group of deer, and you move on them. And you're moving and going all day. And you're burning calories. And you're hiking like crazy. And you know, it's so interesting how many more calories and and energy you're burning when you're stalking a deer. It's one thing to be sitting there glassing them, and then it's it's amazing how you do a two-hour stalk or a three-hour stalk on a deer, and you're literally sneaking and in stealth mode how physically exhausting that is. Well, and so just, and,
0: and mentally too. I mean, you just, yeah. like, you're just so focused on one thing for so many hours sometimes. And it's just like, okay, like just th- how much I have to think about where am I going to put this footstep so that it doesn't crinkle or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it, and- it sounds simple, but over the course of a two hour stock, just, mentally you're just beat beat yeah, down in that food yeah physically. that that food is like the only have, way yeah
1: having your backpack what you may need again so when we go out back to red flesh's questions i make sure every day i go out i at least have what i need for that day um, in terms of food and water and then to remind myself to to grab a snack a candy bar or whatever during the day i you know so we're eating and eating and eating all day and again, usually you can get back to camp at night, but that's usually what we have on our backpacks—is to make sure every day we're going out with what we need for the day. Um, and to that whole discussion about food again, no, you know, nobody likes. It's, it's kind of interesting. There's kind of this this masochistic approach sometimes that guys are proud in going out and they lost 10 pounds on a hunt and it was so hard. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to. You know, we always do though. Every time we go on an extended hunt, I come back lighter but I try to eat as much as I can so that you, it, it, you know, you never want to feel like you lost a deer or missed a stock opportunity because you were so tired on yeah. day five. Um, but so we just eat a ton and we try to keep a variety of things in our backpack so you mix it up.
0: Yep. The, in fact, now that you say that, the hunts that I think back to where I really, on like a seven-day hunt again, where I really lost weight, it was probably either because I was not in good enough shape, which naturally, you know, just beating the hills up, you're going to lose weight, or I wasn't packing enough food. Yeah, You know, and, and nowadays, yeah, and like, like you said,
1: when you feel like you can't eat what you want, you know, you can't yeah. feel like you, you, when you feel like you're, you're having to piecemeal and you're burning calories like that. It doesn't work out. You, in fact, you can have a really, it can become dangerous. So do, you, I would just, do you really ingest yeah.
0: 4000 calories? Yeah, you know,
1: there are times that we do and, and but it so much of it again comes down to what you're eating and the variety. It's it's we spent so much I spent more time on this than I ever thought I would on variety. Um and and trying different, you know, granola and nuts and pop tarts and fruit snacks and tuna fish packets and beef jerky sticks and what I like, I hate being on the mountain feeling like I have to choke down food because I hate it. Yeah. And a lot of the dehydrated food is so loaded in sodium and you don't get enough nutrients, you don't get enough um, energy-type foods, proteins, carbs, you don't get enough electrolytes. And, you know, a lot of the hunting industry is going that way where guys are becoming more educated and smarter and it's a good thing. But so much of it, again, doesn't it comes down to variety. I don't want to be eating the same thing on day five that I hate on day one. You're going to be choking it down. So, trying to find a variety of things that you like that work for you and then just pound it. Um, and I don't know that it's common for a lot of the listeners here to do a seven or eight day backpack. A lot of it's probably more of a three, four day thing. But even then, if you plan for it, prepared for it, and you've become educated from other guys, I've learned so much from other people that do it. Don't be afraid to reach out to guys. And most guys I know, Dustin want to share. They're willing to share. They're willing to share what works for them. And there's such a wealth of knowledge from different guys now, even, you no, know, not even necessarily, uh, hunting websites and, and podcasts and, and individuals, but backpacking. There's so much good information from backpacking, from surviving type, um, groups and forums that you can learn from. And that's where we garnered a lot of our information was backpacking and camping, what guys eat and what's good energy food for them. And then trying it yourself and trying to get a variety of things that work for you.
0: Yeah what uh what water filter do you run
1: i use that catadine, um the i think it's like the backpacker plus i i've had the same one for a few years i do like the fact you know the idea of like my wife for christmas got me one of these straws that you can just suck through a straw mm, and it filters water and they're really yeah life straw but for me i i, I don't know that i would use that because Usually, I'm not sucking water from a stream. I'm wanting to pump and fill up a canteen or two. So yeah. I think a LifeStraw is a great idea, but I'm usually wanting to pump in larger quantities and fill a canteen up or two, and, and the one I use, I've used forever, and it works. You know, there are smaller versions and different things out there now that I haven't tried. I've just used the same one for years, and as long as you keep your filter in that, your filter cartridge changed probably every year just to play it safe, that's the one we use, and they pump pretty fast. You can fill up. You know, when we get to our base camp and have a water source, or a lot of times in the summer when I'm preseason scouting in the high country, that's one of the things we do in June as we get into the high country and try to find water sources or runoff sources when there's a snowpack that's dripping water and running water. So we'll take an empty water bottles and water flask, and we'll pump and fill up as many gallons as we can and just stash them. Yeah. So in the fall, when you come back and hunt if the water's gone. You have these stashes of water all over, um, and that's when those – more of the pump style filters work well as you can pump in pretty high quantities.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, what stove do you run? Red, Red Fletch is asking another question. What stove do you run? And oh. and something about tacos. I don't know. He keeps asking about harder. Do you like harder soft shell tacos? And what stove oh. do you run for your tacos? <laughs> there must be an inside joke there.
1: No, there's not, unless you know something I don't. Uh, and I, we just, it's funny. We use the Jetboil just because I've used it forever. I haven't tried a lot of the other stuff, honestly. Uh, and I think there's other, that's something to reassess every year to see if there's just as an efficient and effective, uh, product out there. Uh, you know, the jet boils are nice cause we can just boil water in them. They boil quick and easy and there's different versions, larger or smaller. Um, I think Matt was running a different one this year. Um, so, you know, I, again, I haven't changed in that regard cause the jet boils have been so good and efficient for us um, for me to boil water in and you can get smaller versions that everything packs up inside of it. And you can throw it in your pack, but there's a lot like that. There's a lot of different products. Yeah. I think Primus has a couple that are supposed to be really nice. And this will differ guy to guy. I've been on chat forums and threads where guys are using different ones. And I think, you know, there's a lot of good points made for other, for kind of different products, but I've used jet boil for a long time and it's always worked fine.
0: Yeah, I, I have personally never, I've been using a Jetboil now for maybe two years, maybe. Um, our buddy Corey was running them first. And um, before that, I was using just a really uh, lightweight and cheap uh, MSR pocket rocket, which for a guy that's just getting into it and definitely on a budget, um, you know, the I think they're 40 bucks, maybe, or 50 bucks. Um, really tough to beat. I just got sick and tired of waiting for water to boil um, was my only thing with those. And those jet boils are just, man, they've got to be three or four times, maybe five times faster. Um, you know, and the last thing you want to do when you get back to camp is just sit there and watch your, you know, through your headlamp, watching your water, waiting for it to boil. But yeah, it's, it seems to be either a love hate with jet boils for some reason. Um, the, the complaints I think that I've heard the most is that the, the ones with the models that have the igniter, uh, the igniter button goes out and doesn't work, which I don't have one that has that. I always have to just flip my uh, my uh, lighter anyway, and so that's it's kind of a non-issue for me. But it, every, you know, everyone who loves them loves them.
1: Uh, yeah, and, you know, I've gone to the one without the lighter as well, just as I always I always have a lighter with me, I a couple actually. Right. I always carry a couple, so it's not a big deal to light that one. I mean, if you didn't have a lighter or matches and you're in with a uh lighter required jet boil or whatever and it goes out you know that could be difficult or uh, just one more thing to worry about and the ones without the lighter i think are smaller too so you can get a smaller version and just keep a lighter with you um but we've always had luck with them and a lot of times in the backcountry when you're cooking up a quick breakfast and you want to just heat up some oatmeal and get some water boiling yeah it's a quick way to just get things going and um they're pretty compact and easy to throw in your pack yeah perfect
0: um kinger 3300 um he asks, "What is one mistake that you've learned from the most?" Or I'll ask also, like, "What's what's maybe your favorite mistake that you've made?"
1: Same question. Oh man, um, uh, I'm trying to think. I've had I have, <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> Whatever. Um, you know, I, you think of the mistakes. You think about the mistakes you make on uh, on big animals, right? Like, if I make a mistake on a on a, little, a smaller animal. It doesn't mean or as, as impactful as when you mess up on just a, a, a slob. And I have, I have like, my big three. I I have three mule, mule there that I, I could have and maybe, I don't know if I should have killed, but I could have. And all three of them just haunt me to this day because um, they were just giants. We all have those. But, you know, I think of one of the mistakes I learned from the most, uh, you know, there's been times I haven't played the wind right and I felt like I got in too much of a hurry and didn't take the time of a situation. This happens multiple times where I don't feel like I played the wind or took into account what the wind might be doing in a certain situation. It, it always burns you. Um, so we again, we're going back to man. If you any time you're going into a scenario where you're going to stalk an animal or move in on an animal or try to get ahead of an animal, you have to, that has to be one of the first things you consider is what is the wind going to do and can I play it. And in situations that I look back and regret, it's when I, I I felt like I got in such a hurry that I didn't stop and check myself. Like, what do I think the wind's going to be doing there? And you can't always play it perfect and know that, but I think it's always good to reassess and reevaluate. Um, I, you know, and I, and this is when I was a young, young kid, I was hunting with a recurve. I think I was like 12 or 13 years old or maybe 14. I, when I was hunting with a recurve, it was before I had a compound bow and it was down in your neck of the woods, actually, Dustin, and I, got, I, I watched some deer come out to a sagebrush flat all through the summer, and there was just a nice little three-point in this group, and I'd never harvested an animal with a bow. And I went in one night, and I tucked back up into this pine tree on the ground, and I told myself if this deer came out, I would love to kill him with my bow. I'd never killed anything with my bow, and this, this deer actually came out right in front of me. Um, I couldn't believe it, and I got selfish in that moment. He came out, and he was feeding you know, not even 15 yards in front of me on the ground. I was just stuck back in this tree, and I got selfish in that moment. I started looking at him thinking, ah, he's not, he doesn't look as big as I thought he would. And just like that, all of a sudden, he realized I was there, he took off, and I I missed my opportunity of that deer. And Mm. as soon as it went south, I thought, what did I just do? I I came here to try to harvest this deer. I told myself I would kill this deer, and the situation presented itself perfectly, and I got selfish. And so I have never forgotten realizing in that moment i got a little ahead of myself and i don't know why i felt like in that situation i could have done better than that deer that presented itself to me and so and again with traditional deer with the recurve and and i learned a lot from that that you know at some point when opportunities with the bow present themselves how selfish do you want to be because they're so few and far between um to get in legitimate bow range and, and so to, to kind of know ahead of time what you're willing to try to harvest and what you're not. You know, I was in Colorado, kind of a similar story, but I was in Colorado about seven or eight years ago, and there was a group of deer that we were hunting. There was about 10 or 12 deer in the bunch uh, of, of a group of bucks, and there was a couple that were just bombers, you know, 185 type plus deer. But there was a number of deer in that group that were 165, 170 deer, and I was talking to another bow hunter out there, and he said, boy, I, I don't know if I'd shoot more than a couple of those deer in that group. And I thought, I'd shoot. There's seven or eight I would shoot. Because I'll shoot all of them. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's, it's so hard to get in bow range of a good, mature deer in the high country that, man, it's, it's hard to pass up an opportunity on a good, mature deer. And I learned a lot from that experience as a young bow hunter that, man, that, that was an opportunity that I was very fortunate to have. And I let it go because I got selfish in the moment, and that has given me some perspective over time. Yeah.
0: Um, Nimrod Outdoors asked uh, asked you to talk about your first ever bow uh, buck that you killed with a bow. Do you remember that? Oh,
1: right on. Yeah, that's Jeff Barlow, another Southern Utah kid that I grew up playing ball with. He's awesome, hmm. good friend of mine. Um, graduated from high school with him uh, back in the day. So, hi Jeff. Uh, you know, uh, just a quick story. My first. I'll, I'll talk about my first mature deer that I harvested. I was really lucky, Dustin, because I harvested a, a really good deer when I was about 18 or 19, and it was an area that we I, I was backpacking and scouting all the time when I was a kid. I loved getting off the grid, and back then you really could get off the grid, where you could backpack into an area and there was no cell phone. You didn't worry about any of that. There was none of that. So We had backpacked in 7, 8, 9, 10 miles and deep back in for 2 or 3 or 4 days and just loved getting back in, and we found a a little water source back then um, that was just getting pounded by deer. And we spent so much time backpacking, and they didn't have trail cameras back then. So if you wanted to see what was hitting a water source, you had to sit on the water source. And we built the blind. Um, in fact, we actually built it on a water snake, or excuse me, a rattlesnake den, we found out later. Um, it, it, I was sitting there one night and had rattlesnakes all over me and we, uh, an old rancher, yeah, an old rancher, an old rancher told us later, he's like, are you the idiots that built that blind on that water hole or there was a route he's like, that rattlesnake has been there for 30 years. I don't know what you're, and we didn't know that, but he was laughing at us. But, um, not even something, not
0: even something to, we even so something to and joke about hunting
1: like that. And I ended up harvesting just a good Pope and young buck. And it was, it, it it was uh, it's a really neat heavy gnarly looking old deer but it let me know as a young bow hunter that I could do it it gave me the confidence at an early age that I could do it there's so much time and effort that goes into some of these archery hunts and situations like I said are few and far between and there are guys I know that have bow hunted hard for years and they never they never have that opportunity to experience success and so that was a blessing for me because it let me know i could do it It let me know i could do it i wanted to do it again i wanted to replicate it again but it gave me a sense of confidence and optimism and i i really feel for guys that struggle with a bone they never experienced that because if they can stick with it um and enjoy it for the process that it is not just whether or not they harvest an animal although it really does come down to that for a lot of guys and i understand it but to enjoy the process just i look back at the way i hunted when i was 18 19 20 back you know 20 years ago and even longer and I'm so appreciative that I had the chance to do it and I had the opportunity to be out and to be healthy and to be hiking and um, it's given me again perspective but I was very fortunate at a young age to harvest a good deer with my bow and to realize I can do this and that optimism bleeds over every year it seems like where um, it's, it's almost a mentality that I know I can do it and When you have that mentality and that optimism that you can do it and you know a situation will eventually present itself, and if you just stick with it and just stay at it, it will. There were a lot of guys I know this year um, that harvested their first elk with a bow on the Wasatch front, that harvested their first mule deer with a bow, and I'm so happy for them because you know a lot of them. There's so much time and effort that goes in. And if you're not having success or even having an opportunity, it can be very discouraging for guys bow hunting to feel like it'll never happen for them. Um, so that's what happened with me on my first good meal there with the bow. And I, I am so happy when I see guys have the opportunity to experience that.
0: Yeah. You know, and we we live in such a unique time, um, with all the technology and the social media, um, where, you know, maybe 20 years ago when you're starting out, um, you know, the only pressure that you had was just whatever you chose to put on yourself, and now you—it's easy to get caught up in uh, pressure from social media. You know, you see guys like you or guys like you know whoever um, you know that are killing these these monster bucks um, year after year, and it's easy, I think, to get um, the wrong mindset that oh, man, like if I don't do that, um, you know, or or look how easy it is for these guys or whatever, um, you know, and, and so I, I think if we, you know, it we can't let that, um, you know, that outside influences social media, um, you know, because, I mean, like, like you said, think how many years now you've been doing this to get to the point where you're knocking down these big bucks consistently. Um, guys who are just starting out need to realize – um, that, and, and I need to realize that sometimes that, you know, you can't beat experience. Uh, and sometimes it's okay just to, you know, to put down a smaller buck just because, Hey, I, yep. I you know, I, I, I want to learn how, you know, I just want to learn how to go through the process of, I mean, just, just quartering up any deer. I don't care if it's a, a, a doe or a buck or whatever, quartering up and boning out and packing out a deer in the, in the backcountry in and of itself is a learning experience, you know. And sometimes you just need to not be influenced by what's going on around us, and and just be there for your own reasons. So.
1: Yeah, and it's I've talked about that before. I I, I really believe that, Dustin. That it's hard when you see, you know, now everything that's killed, everything is 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 posted up, and it's fun to see it. It's fun to share another guy's success and to see what other guys are doing. Um, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah but it also gives this false impression that it should happen every year and every hunt you go on, you should be harvesting uh, a trophy, whatever your trophy animal is. And the reality is with a bow, it's just hard. It is, you know, and I think we can't, it, it, I, I try not to lose sight of that, that it's the, you know, you always hear it's the journey, not the destination. And being able to realize the success you have is not necessarily what you're harvesting, but just the opportunity you have to go, just right. the opportunity to go out. Um, and I seem to appreciate that more and more every year. It, it's, there's so much enjoyment I get in going and there's obviously excitement and adrenaline when you find an animal you may want to harvest. And we've talked about that whole process of scouting and targeting an animal and, but I really, really enjoy the process more now, probably than I ever have simply because of the perspective I think I've gained over time. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh,
0: we better get rolling through fire around here. We'll be on the phone all day. Um,
1: <laughs> I'm enjoying it.
0: Uh, uh, mechanical or fixed blade broadheads?
1: You know, I shoot mechanical, and and uh, you know, I'm a diehard Grim Reaper um, user. i and and that mainly came about because the the first well. I killed I killed a buck here in Utah that went almost 2:30. He was a really really big deer, and I killed him with a Grim Reaper. It was kind of a last minute decision. I I decided I wanted to try a mechanical head. I heard really good things about Grim Reaper. I ended up harvesting this deer, uh, that that I and I and Grim Reaper performed really well at killing that deer. Um, and so I sent I just sent a picture to Grim Reaper, and I just said I don't I don't I'm not looking for anything. I just want to say thanks because this is. trophy of a lifetime for me and I feel like a lot of it was because of the way this mechanical head functioned and thank you you can use this and if you want to use it in promotion whatever but thank you and uh, the national product manager at the time was Matt Bateman and he contacted me and we've been obviously the best of friends since then and but I've used nothing but grim Reaper since then and I love mechanical and this is a debate that could go on you know there's no right or wrong answer to mechanical versus fixed blade I can only speak to my experience, and my experience with Grim Reaper um, has just been outstanding. Um, And I've been on both sides of this debate where guys feel like they've lost an animal because of a mechanical malfunctioning, whether it was Grim Reaper or another one. And then I've heard guys say that they've lost animals because they didn't feel like they didn't get the performance they wanted out of a a fixed play. So this is kind of a Chevy Ford thing for me, and I know guys on both sides of this, but I use a Grim Reaper. I use a mechanical. I shoot a a 1-3-8 cut, 100-grain tip, and as long as I understand how the mechanical works, how to properly put it on my arrow, how to check it, because with mechanicals, you got to make sure... They, they're sitting properly on the arrow. you got to make sure they're spinning right. There are little things you can do to tweak them. And if you ever want to look into that or educate yourself on that, you could contact Grim Reaper. You can contact Matt Bateman. He'll take whatever time he needs you to talk to you about it. But when you do that and when you make sure you're set up properly, I've had really, really phenomenal results from the mechanicals I shoot with Grim Reaper. And we've killed mule deer. We've killed bears. We've killed whitetail. We've killed elk. Um, so much of it i 'm a believer ninety nine percent of it comes down to shot placement it doesn 't yeah. come down to which broadhead you're using per se, but where you hit that animal, what the distance was, what the angle was and if you or if you 're using any type of broadhead of any repute that is a well performing broadhead and you put the proper shot on that animal for the angle and the distance you 're going to get the right performance most of the time um, And so we take all that into consideration whenever, I mean, there's been shots I've passed up on an animal that I really wanted to kill, but it wasn't the right angle. And I didn't have that perspective when I was a younger, kind of a newer, a younger kid in bow hunting. It was just like, man, get an arrow in an animal Mm. and hope you kill him. And now it's like every time I draw back on an animal, how's the angle? What's my distance? Am I comfortable? What is it? How am I? There's so much more perspective I have now, but when you feel like everything presents itself right and you execute right, you know, Grim Reaper has done phenomenal for me. Awesome.
0: Um, this is a no brainer, but elk, mule deer, or antelope?
1: Sorry. Can you say that one more time?
0: Oh, sorry. Elk, mule deer, or antelope?
1: Boy, mule deer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's been fun over the years though. I, I you know, I just spent, I, I like you, Dustin, I grew up as a mule deer kid. That's all I, that's all I knew growing up. And so that, Become such a big part of who I am and what I love to do. I, you know, I grew up looking at these pictures of Ted Rick down on the Arizona strip, a guy <laughs> and a name I'm sure you know. And I, I just looked at some of the deer that Ted harvested back and they down on the strip. And that's such a big part of me that nothing will ever replace mule deer as my number one passion. It just won't, but it is so fun. I have, I have uncovered a completely new world for me going out and hunting whitetail. I, I, it's something I love now. I never would have thought that. If you ever would have told me that I'd be willing to go sit in a tree stand for 10 days in Illinois, sun up to sundown, sitting in a tree stand to hunt a whitetail, I would have laughed at you. And now I just love it. And, and then we've had a chance to hunt elk and antelope. And, again, kind of to our conversation before, getting a variety of different animals to hunt in different states at different times of the year, it makes you a better bow hunter. It gives you some variety. It gives you some perspective. It gives you different hunts to look forward to. And I think for a lot of guys listening to this, that's for, you know, when you're a kid, you look 364 days a year, you're looking forward to Christmas Day. And now, for me, Christmas Day is knowing that in the spring I got this bear hunt, I got a mule deer hunt coming up, and and it gives you something to look forward to, and that sometimes kind of helps you keep your sanity as, as the stresses of life come into play, knowing that you have a, a hunt coming up that maybe you haven't done before or you haven't tried before. So, I, you know, I we, we, we kind of look at different variety of hunts that – give us some perspective and some variety, but man, I'm a mule deer guy and I probably always will be.
0: Yeah. I know you, you, uh, predominantly hunt with a bow, but what's your, uh, what's your favorite backcountry hunting rifle caliber?
1: You know, I use a seven mag. The, the really only, the only back, the only rifle hunting I do now is either with my kids or when we go bear hunting in the deserts, um, it's long range, uh, long range rifle hunting. So I have a seven mag and I spend a lot of time in research looking at long range hunting and the right caliber. Um, I've spent actually more time in this than than I ever thought I would, but I am incredibly impressed that if you get the right if you get the right load for that seven mag, from smaller game, you know, even a couple deer type animal out to moose. You know, if you figure out the right load for that caliber, that is an incredibly effective caliber. The ballistics on it are great and it depends on the load you're shooting. Uh, but that's been an education for me too, to get into the long range rifle hunting and it's just effective long range performance and how that can extend your range as a hunter and and what you can effectively do with the gun in your hands but i've i've shot a seven mag since i was 18 and i think i kind of did that out of just getting a seven mag and the more i've looked into it recently over the last 10 years it's a great caliber
0: yeah hard to beat what uh what is your dream hunt what would your dream
1: hunt be did you say my dream hunt yeah sorry you know i it's Oh, grizzly bears is a bucket list item for me. And it's funny, I, I, Matt Bateman and I went up to Alaska hunting moose. That was a bucket list item for me. And hunts like that are few and far between for guys like us on a budget where you're trying to kind of do a poor man's hunt and do it so you don't break the bank. Um, so we went up and hunted moose, and that was a bucket list hunt for me. But we were in an area that had grizz in it that we didn't expect. And we had a number of run-ins with grizzly bear that were really unnerving. I mean, it was close range grizzly bear encounters that we really weren't expecting. And uh, it gave me a whole new respect for that species of animal because they are unbelievably uh, just intimidating. And, and really, I was scared. I had a couple of them come in on me at really close range while we were bow hunting moose. And um, gave me a whole new respect for that species of animal. And I think uh, I would love to do a hunt. I, to, the thought of getting within bow range of one of those on the ground Hmm. is, is unreal to me. And I don't know that I, you know, it'll be interesting to see if I ever have the fortitude to try it, but Mm. that's a bucket list item for me that I would love at some point to try to do.
0: If, uh, if you could only hunt one state the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: Colorado. I'd hunt Colorado. Um, I just, again, back to the point earlier, there's so much country out there. And even if you don't get into the type of deer you want, that's a experience in an in and of itself, where you are backpacking into some of the biggest, steepest, most remote country you can possibly get into in the lower 48, and it is incredible. You know, you're on high elevation, big basins, there's glacial lakes, there's deep drainages, you can see a variety of animals, and you really feel like you can get off the grid up there, where in some of these other states, it's it's not as easy to do. Um, so Colorado is a state I love. I think there, you know, there's other states around that I haven't experienced yet. I haven't spent a lot of time in Wyoming. I haven't spent a lot of time in Nevada. But right now, at least, the, the, the opportunity afforded by Colorado to just get off the grid and get into some of the biggest um, and most intimidating country I've ever been in is something that will always, always appeal to me.
0: Good. Stick with Colorado. There's nothing to see in Nevada. Um, <laughs> what is, uh, what's your favorite backcountry food item?
1: Oh, you know, it changes year to year, actually, but we, you know, it's funny, this last year, we were a lot of time, we ate tuna fish packets, and we put them on crackers with mustard, and bring in different types of cheeses, we're sounding kind of snobby now, because we're getting that specific, I always eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, because you get so much energy, you get energy from the peanut butter and the jelly, and yeah, as I look back at the years I bow hunted, that actually is probably the most consistent one I always have. Day after day when I'm making a lunch or packing in for a day, as I seem to always be pounding peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So that's probably it, actually.
0: Yeah, it's hard to beat just a good PB&J up on the mountain. Good PB&J. Yeah. Okay, one last question. First, uh, where uh, where can people find you? You're, are you on Instagram the most?
1: Yeah, I don't do Facebook. I, I don't spend a ton of time on Instagram. I've really enjoyed it more over the last year than I ever than ever thought I would, more just to, to check in with guys. But I, I'm on Instagram. It's Kip Fowler, than the number eight, just Kip Fowler eight. And I welcome anybody to reach out to me and say hi. That's something I really enjoy is when guys I can reconnect with from the past reach out or guys that I haven't met before. Um, I've struck up a lot of good friendships with guys. So I'd welcome anybody to come say hi. Yeah.
0: are you a, Are you an expo guy? Do you go to the expo or represent any booths there or just kind of mosey around or what
1: nope your... i just kind of mosey around we usually go up uh day one or two when things are kind of quiet i have hmm. a lot of friends up there that have booths and stuff so we usually jump up um and sneak in i go in there with my kids when things are a little quieter and just uh get, uh, get play for those hunts i'll never draw <laughs> yeah Huh? Um, I've got a neighbor that's drawn three tags at the expo and I so I don't know what's going on with that. It seems to happen every year. But I've, i I really enjoy going up seeing some of the booths and the taxidermy and bumping into some of my old friends. But yeah, I'll be up there this year looking around.
0: Yeah, come uh come find us. I can never remember what our booth number is, but we're you know how they kind of expanded in the last couple of years to that back corner at the expo. Um, yep, yep. we're and and we're, you know, bottom of the totem pole. So we're, we're kind of back in the back corner of that. Just it's past like Hoyt mountain ops, uh, the total archery challenges back there. And we're kind of past all that, but if you come find cool. us, I'll
1: come back and find you. Yeah. Year. If you come
0: find us, we'll give you a t-shirt or a hat or whatever you want.
1: Yeah. Right. On. I'll come say hi.
0: Cool. Okay. Uh, one last question, but first I, uh, always like to give, uh, my guests credit and, uh, for you the first thing I want to give you credit for is, uh, braving the Wasatch. <laughs> we, we talked about that quite a bit and, uh, and anyone who hasn't hunted it will just have to take my word that, um, you know, it's not, I won't call it combat hunting cause no one's out there to hurt each other, but it's just, uh, it's very, <clears throat> very competitive. And, uh, to see the bucks that you're knocking down consistently in hunting, uh, you know, says a lot. There's a lot of guys that spend a lot of time up there and, uh, and, and can't, uh, you know i can't find that success so um and then just in general i want to give you credit for killing huge mule deer it's it's obviously your thing and you're very very good at it so
1: it's, well uh, i appreciate it man and yeah. like i said it's i i know i've been blessed and i've you know one quick point too it, it, there's a there's always i think going to be some competitive component of, of archery hunting no matter where you're at because we're all competitive and we all want to do well but even up here on the front, there are so many good guys up here that I bumped into at that, and even though it's combat slash competitive hunting, mm-hmm. man there are some good guys up here that would give you the shirt off their back and help you in any situation and I've been very fortunate um to run into and talk to a lot of those guys, and I look forward to more of that even in a kind of a competitive environment like this there's a lot of a lot of good guys that you know. I hope continue to have success, and guys that haven't, I hope when you do, you reach out to me, because I always, again, public land with a bow and tough terrain, if you pull off um, the opportunity to harvest a good deer, I love to share that, and I would welcome anybody listening, whether you're on the front or wherever, you know shoot me a phone call or a text and i love sharing guys success when they've earned it on public land so
0: well you're you're clearly one of the good ones uh I, the response that i got uh, just from posting your picture that i was gonna be able to chat with you was uh, was pretty overwhelming uh what type of guy you are so and then and then last uh and maybe most importantly i want to give you credit for uh you know the things you said about your family and being a family man first and um, you know realizing that there's bigger things out there than hunting as crazy as this is and as as passionate as we are about this kind of stuff um, I know my family is the most important thing uh, to me on this earth and and so it's it's refreshing to uh, you know always refreshing to come across guys who uh, keep important things important and uh, keep that in perspective so
1: yeah well I I 100% agree with that and I I, I appreciate you bringing that up because, again, if you're taking care of things at home and you're putting wife, kids, parents, whatever, if you're putting your family first, um, if if you have that opportunity, it it bleeds over into everything else, Um, hunting, work, everything else, and I think if you're trying to do what's right in that regard, it will lead to ultimately, you know, the guys that are listening to this podcast are hunters. The guys that are listening to this are bow hunters. and I'm an absolute 100% firm believer that if you try, if you try to do everything you can to be a good husband, son, father, friend, neighbor, it comes back to you on the mountain in ways that maybe you wouldn't expect. And I fully believe that with all my heart. So I appreciate you bringing that up. No problem. Okay, one last question.
0: Why, uh, why do you hunt the back country?
1: You know, it's and I've I've hunted both ways. I've hunted where um, you're you're hunting low country and you're hunting the alfalfa field or you're hunting the tree stand and the backcountry for me is such a challenge and it's a physical challenge. There's the physical and psychological component that comes into play in the backcountry and I love that. I've loved that since I was a young kid and maybe that's because of where I grew up and the way I grew up. I always wanted to get off the grid and find an area that was just mine. You know, a hunting place is sacred ground. You know, we all have these little places in the back of our mind or in the forefront of our mind when we're hunting that are ours. It's the place you grew up hunting with your dad. It's the place you grew up hunting with your grandpa. It's the place you grew up hunting with friends. And maybe you're hunting there now and they're sacred to you. And people that maybe don't hunt may not understand that. But the sacred ground component of hunting I found in the backcountry where I found a I could backpack in, get off the gearhead, get away from people, kind of refocus who I am and then find a place that I felt like was mine. And there's a component of that in the backcountry hunting for me where there's a physical challenge to stay in shape so that I can throw on a backpack and hike. There's the psychological challenge: of Can I do this in rugged terrain and be successful and enjoy it? And then there's always this constant search for can I find my sacred ground? Can I find a little spot that means something to me? And can I share it with a friend or a family member? And I think that kind of approach for me is what motivates me to always want to be able to get to the backcountry, country and, and that's what's kept me captivated for so many years and you know there's going to be a place i find next year that may become that for me and there's a place i may find five years from now that offers all of those challenges and yet i really connect with and uh, to be able to do that with a bow in your hand is just icing on the cake for me awesome
0: kip thank you so much i'm uh I, I feel like we could talk all day about hunting and backcountry hunting and, and mule deer and uh and hopefully soon we'll uh we'll just continue a conversation and you know, maybe dive into more gear or something like that. So it's it's been, yep, a, I love it. been a huge pleasure and uh I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh to spend some time talking about backcountry hunting.
1: Uh you bet that's I've enjoyed it. The pleasure was mine. Thank you.
0: Okay. Maybe we'll see you at the expo. You will. I'll say hi. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Kip.
1: Talk to you later, you bet.
0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.